0: Thanks for that, Nath. Well, good day again, everybody. Nice to to see you this morning. I am not a success in business. Some of you guys are a success in business. So you can tell me the story about how this works. But from what I understand, if you're going to be a success in business, you need to know how to do a deal. And uh, with a bit of uh, research this week, I found that the deal tends to work this way. There seems to be three major components of a deal one, what is your expected return? Two, what is your upside potential? And three, what is your downside risk? Now, for half of you, you say, I don't even know what those words mean. That's okay. Uh, But they're all about the person making the deal, aren't they? They're all directed in the direction of the person making the deal. That's what we do. If we make a deal, we go in wanting to achieve the deal with an outcome that is pleasing to us. That's just the way it works. Now, some business leaders have put it in this particular way. These are not my own words. These are business leaders' words. Have a look on the screen. A couple of quotes here. The worst thing you can possibly do in a deal is seem desperate to make it. That makes the other guy smell blood and then you're dead. There you go. What about this one? I'm the first to admit that I am very competitive and that I'll do nearly anything to win within legal bounds to win. Sometimes part of making a deal is denigrating your competition. wonder what you think about those quotes. Who made those quotes? Donald Trump. Donald Trump made them in The Art of the Deal, the book that he wrote many, many years ago. Now, whatever you think of him, he's certainly been a man who has made a lot of deals throughout his life in many different contexts. But sometimes it comes closer to home, doesn't it? I remember a particular kid's ministry leader on one particular occasion dealing with a particularly cantankerous child and making a deal that went something like this. You want me as a leader to stop being angry with you. I'll do that. Here's my deal. I'll stop being angry if you start behaving well. The kid thought, oh, I'm getting something in this deal. This is great for me. Great, I'll do it. That kid's leader may or may not have been me, but it was a good deal, (laughs) and it worked. Well, you can judge who's in charge of making the deal and uh, uh, what the art of the deal should look like, and so on and so forth. Today, we're going to see a person in the Bible who's a deal maker. His name's Jephthah. It's a hard name to say, isn't it? Hard name to get your mouth around. Well done, Nate. But he's a success to a point. In our passage today, Jephthah makes four separate deals, and not all of them go well. He's wise and successful in many ways, and even a man of faith. But at the end of this story, what we'll see is that you can't do deals with God. Now today, just before we go any further, I need to make a short disclaimer. What we've got here in the passage that we're about to look at, which is all of chapter 10 through to all of chapter 12 is one of the most sickening stories in the whole Bible. If you're here joining us today for the first time, we work our way through books of the Bible, and we do so in an organised way, uh, just so that we'll touch on every part of God's spoken word to us. And today we come to a hard part, a difficult part, a challenging part that shows us horrible things in the Bible. And we're left asking questions like, why are horrible things like this in the Bible? Now you might like to ask a question about that later on as we answer some questions at slido.com on your device hashtag is HBSP to ask a question but in short the answer is this the Bible is not always a story of what we must do but often a story of what we must not do. The Bible always shows us real people and sometimes therefore shows us real evil but always shows us the real God in the midst of chaos. Now you might say, well, Nathan's reading was fairly innocuous. Where are we going with this? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment, but let's bow our heads as we pray. We need God's help to look at this important passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Please be with us as we look at these chapters this morning. Please guide our thoughts and our hearts so that we might understand you better, know you more. And as a result, go into this week ready to serve and love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like the judges that have come before, the cycle of the book of Judges continues in chapter 10, verse 6. Do you remember the cycle? Here it is on your screen. We see this over and over again in the book of Judges. The people of Israel sin. God is angered and delivers them over to their enemies. The people cry out to God. God raises up a judge. And then there's a time of peace. And we see this in chapter 10, verse 6. Look at that with me, chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel... Again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. And for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel. Who were beyond the Jordan. The people of God, who were supposed to serve God and God alone, were now serving not only one other false God as if that was okay, but multiple other false and fake gods. And we find out in chapter 10, verse 10, that the people of God cry out to God, but this time something is different about this cycle. This time, God does not respond. He's seen it all before. Multiple times they've cried out to God, which we've seen has not been an act of repentance, but an act of, please come and help us. We need your help. We want to get back into a comfortable life. And and he says, I've saved you many times before. I've saved you so many times out of the hands of all the different nations. Verses 11 and 12 go on to say, but you just go back to normal again. Once peace comes and the judge dies, then you go back to sinning against me with even more gods this time. And the people of Israel come back and say to to God, no, 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 we really, really mean it this time. Does this sound like a conversation that might be had in your household? (laughs) We really mean it this time. And so verse 16, this all comes to a head. Look at what happens, chapter 10, verse 16. The Israelites, so they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now it's important for us that we don't necessarily join these two things together. It's not because of the action of the Israelites that God comes and saves his people. But because of his grace. You see, this gets to the heart of the problem of God's people all along. They've worked it out now. If we cry out to God, God will give us comfort back again. Peace and comfort. Wonderful. So then we'll cry out to God. But it doesn't work that way. You can't negotiate with God. When things are bad, we cry out. God saves us and gives us peace. But this is like some sort of Pavlov's dog arrangement and that's not how God works. No, God only saves out of His great compassion and mercy. He saves because He makes a step towards His people. This reminds us, doesn't it, of the difference between sorrow and repentance. We can have sorrow over our sin quite easily, can't we? Because we've been found out or we've been embarrassed by our sin or we've found consequences to our sin or or, or we're ashamed of what we have done. But repentance in the sight of God is different. Repentance is a response to the righteous, gracious God and it's a change of mind and behaviour. But neither sorrow nor repentance is an act of twisting God's arm. We cannot manipulate God. God saves out of His grace and mercy. And no amount of good things we do, no amount of righteous activities we do, no amount of religious activities we do can force the hand of God to deliver grace and mercy to us. See, the nation of Israel had seemingly worked out the system. If we cry out to God, He'll save us and give us peace. But God says, no, hang on can't do a deal with me like this. And then what we see in chapter 10 verses 6 to 18 is lived out in the person of Jephthah who we meet in chapter 11 verse 1. Just as Israel had tried to make a deal with God, if we do this, surely you'll come and save us. Jephthah is a deal maker. And we meet him in chapter 11 verses 1 to 3. Look at those verses again. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior On the outer, the son of a prostitute. And perhaps, trying to protect against history, the other sons don't allow this guy to get a foothold. Remember last week, the other sons allowed Abimelech to get a foothold and Abimelech took the rest of the sons out. And so perhaps not to repeat history, uh, this uh, situation allows Jephthah to be kicked out, sent away. And like Abimelech, he gathers around him a bunch of worthless fellows, we're told. Now who knows what life would have looked like for him in the wilderness with worthless fellows, but what it teaches us in this passage is he's learned the art of the deal. He's learned how to work on the streets. He's learned how to get things done. And so in these in this passage from chapter 11 and chapter 12, we see four deals, four deals that Jephthah tries to The first one is in chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. He tries to make a deal with Gilead. Back in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we find out that the Ammonites are ready to do battle with God's people. But they say in verse 18 of chapter 10, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Whoever it is shall be head over all of the inhabitants of Gilead so the men of Gilead come grovelling back at the door of Jephthah. And they say, we're in trouble, mate. Can you come and help us? We know you're a mighty warrior. We know you're strong. We know you've got this band of brothers with you. Can you come and fight on our behalf? And the shunned one, the one that was put aside, the one that was sent out and outcast, is now invited back. And understandably, Jephthah's got his nose out of joint about this. He says, hang on, you tried to get rid of me and now you want me to come back? What is this about? Yeah, okay, maybe I will come back. But let me do a deal with you first. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. Verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be the witness between us us. If we don't do as you say. This is the deal. It's a good deal for Jephthah, isn't it? If he wins the battle, he becomes in charge of everything in the land of Gilead. Well, it's a good deal in some ways. Of course, it's not a good deal if we know our recent history of the Bible or the history of the Bible at all. That anyone would be the head, the king, the person in charge. It reminds us of Abimelech from last week, who was a tyrannical leader, and others beforehand. It reminds us of the book of Deuteronomy, which warns against a king in the land of God's people. Nevertheless, Jephthah does his deal, and it works out, and he is sent off to go and fight against the Ammonites. But this is where we come up with deal number two. Chapter 11, verses 12 To 28, he's sent out as a mighty warrior to take on the Ammonites. And we might expect that the first thing he would do is put a sword in his hand and go out and fight. But he doesn't. Jephthah's a negotiator. A man of diplomacy. He's someone who's keen on a deal first. Look at verse 12. Jephthah sent messages to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me? to fight against my land. Here's the discussion. And it goes backwards and forwards between the messages of the two. And and, as, uh, as good as Nathan read it for us this morning, there's lots of place names and there's lots of names of people and it can become a very confusing exercise of history and geography. And we say, what's going on here? Well, the discussion is about the land. Back in the day... Uh, Whose land was it? Who does it belong to? Uh, Where does it go? And there's a negotiation that takes place in these verses. And Jephthah is a very skilled negotiator. He uses shrewd words. And he says, it's actually not the case that this land belonged to you Ammonites first. It belonged to us. And it belonged to us because God gave it to us. Look at chapter 11, verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, and are you to take possession of them again? Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Here's the words, God gave us the land, and if your God wants to give you the land, so be it, but our God gave us the land. Now, this is not a a case of Jephthah believing in multiple gods, but just saying, if if what you believe in wants you to take this land, well and good. But we know that the true and living God gave us this land. And it belongs to us. Because he is in charge of all land. And so, the conclusion in verse 27 is this. I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the deal didn't work. The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. They're going to go into battle and into war. Deal-wise, this was not a success. Nevertheless, Jephthah is seen here as a man of faith. He's a man who understands that it's God who delivers to his people the victory and God who delivers to his people the victory. The land and God who delivers to his people every good thing. This is why Jephthah is included in the Hall of Faith back in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at it on your screen again, Hebrews chapter 11. We've looked at this over and over again in this series, but we see it again here. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon who we've met, Barak who we've met, Samson who we will meet, Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mounds of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Here is Jephthah, a man of faith, trusting God. Trusting God to give the victory, whether it be through the deal that he wanted to make or through the battle that he might be put into. He's a smart and shrewd man, acting from faith, and what it seems like in this book of Judges, we've finally come across a decent judge again. Who's not morally all over the place. He seems so good, but things go really bad in his third deal that he tries to make with God himself. Verses 29 to 40 of this passage. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon his people in the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Judges, it's for a particular moment in order to bring about a particular outcome. Here we see God is working with this man, Jephthah, and he is about to deliver victory to him. He's raised up for this specific action. And it may be that the names of places in verse 29 are referring to places he wins victories on his way to the Ammonites. It seems like God is doing good in his life, but then all things go bad. He tries to make a deal with God. Look at verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be to the Lord, uh, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Here is his vow that he makes, and the heading in your Bible probably says a tragic vow, and so it is. He makes a rash vow, much like Gideon, his forefather. He wants an extra layer of proof that God is actually with him. But this rash vow has dire consequences. We're told that he wins the battle. In fact, it seems to come so very, very quickly because we get to the dire results of the deal. Look at verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home after victory at Mizpah and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had no son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the great cause of trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me, Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, and I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And then at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Here, his rash vow results in the direct death of his only daughter. God gives the victory. But when he comes home, the first out of his doors is his only child, his daughter. And he follows through with his vow. We might say, in in our day and age, what is going on here? Why is this even in the Bible? Why would he go through with a vow like this? There's so many questions for us about a situation like this in 2022, but I want to suggest there's so many questions in any age you live in. Any sort of human sacrifice like this is a terrible thing. Let's think about this just a, a little bit more. Let's try and understand what's going on here in God's Word Bible perhaps verse uh, verse 31 was suggesting uh, that he was intending an animal to come out of his door see verse 31 again then whatever comes out from the doors of my house maybe maybe he was intending an animal but you'll notice in your Bible there's a little footnote next to the word whatever it's probably it's probable that he said whoever not only that it's probable because of the way he speaks look at what he says in verse 31 again whatever or whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I shall return. Someone is going to come and meet him. An animal doesn't tend to meet you. Yes, a dog does today, but certainly a dog didn't in the ancient world in the same way greet a person at the door. Was what he intended an animal? I think no. He intended a person from the beginning. He intended a person would be involved in this deal with God from the beginning, this makes the story even more unpalatable than it was in the first place. So, what's he doing? Well, as we've already seen, Jeff, there's a deal maker and he tries to do a deal with God. He says to God, You give me the victory and I'll give you a life. That's his deal. It's a horrible deal, no matter who it is, whose life it is that we're talking about. And it's a deal so rash because he did not have to make it. God was already with him. He was probably already victorious in many different ways. God had already won battles for him. But he wanted to be extra sure that God was with him. He wanted to be extra sure that God was actually present with him. And so he says, here's my deal. You give me victory. I'll give you a life. And what we see in Jephthah is that he's in many ways acting like the nations around him. Remember in the early chapters of the book of Judges the people of God were told to drive out the nations around them for the nations around them had horrible spiritual practices. And we find in chapter 10 verse 6 that God's people had taken on all of the gods of the areas around them and so it should not surprise us that Jephthah in many ways is starting to act like the nations and the gods around. We know that these gods... These religions, these nations around the people of Israel often tried to bribe off the gods with human sacrifice from time to time. And so here, we see Jephthah picking up the culture around him and trying to buy off God with a victory for a life. Now, did Jephthah know that this was against God's law? Maybe. We don't know. What did he understand of God, even as a man of faith of some sort? What, what did he know about God? Did he understand the God of grace, that you don't need to buy God off with what it is that you do and so on? We don't know. Nevertheless, Jephthah thought he could buy off God with this deal, victory for a life, but you don't have to do that. God is the one who gives the victory. And so we spend a lot of time here because we need to ask ourselves a bunch of questions. We need to pause and consider a few things. First of all, we need to, in our own lives, consider the importance of making deep oaths to God. It might be that this particular passage was in the mind of Jesus when he spoke these words in Matthew 5. Look at them on your screen, Matthew five thirty-three. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Uh, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Perhaps Jesus was thinking of the occasion of Jephthah making a rash vow and how we can often do the same thing. People say all the time, don't they? I swear to God, I will do... Whatever it might be. Whether they mean that or they mean it in jest, it is a word that's still said today. We must be careful with our oaths. Secondly, we need to recognise that God is not and has never been like a vending machine. Israel tried to treat God like a vending machine in chapter 10. God, if we do this crying out thing, then you'll give us this stuff. And often we think about God like that as well. If I do this thing, God will reward me in some way over here. The if-then principle. And Jephthah was doing this, if you give me victory, I'll give you a life. It's horrendous. But this is what he thought of God. And we can often fall into that. Not in the same sort of way, but we might say something like this, Lord, if you, if you, if you give me a Christian spouse, then I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Or if, God, you give me a job that I'm really looking for, then, then I'll, be, I'll be generous with what I have. Or if you heal me from my sicknesses, then I'll devote my life to you in some way, shape or form. Of course, the the list could go on, but we don't make deals with God like that. Yes, it's good to ask for what it is that you're asking for, a spouse or a job or a healing. That's all fine. but, But to add then, God must is a mistake because you can't buy off God. Thirdly, the story of Jephthah reminds us Of the danger of the culture around us. Jephthah was a product of his culture. He was unaware, even though in some small way he was a man of faith, he was unaware of the way the culture had affected him, so that now he was taking on the ways and practices of the false gods around him, including human sacrifice itself. And we must be careful that we don't simply live with a Christian veneer which underneath has the gods of our culture. The gods of materialism and popularity and lifestyle and so on. We need to be careful that we don't live with a Christian veneer and a worldly core. Many of you will know the great Jeff Thompson, not the cricketer, the bloke that grew up in Stanwell Park. Jeff Thompson, uh, he's a, a minister now in Nara, in but he spent many years in Stanwell Park, and he spoke about Stanwell Park like this. He said, Stanwell Park, for him, is the hardest wasteland of the Christian faith. Because even though people might call themselves Christians, they value culture, relaxation, lifestyle and pleasure before the Christian faith. It's important for us to realise that we can live with a non-Christian core Christian veneer, just like Jephthah did here. Fourthly, we need to remind ourselves that in the Bible we have polluted heroes. This man had faith, yet he was a very sinful man. There is only one perfect saviour. His name is Jesus. And any other human being in the Bible that we find will be a sinful person. And yet God uses people like this for his purposes, as strange as that may seem. And so as we finish up looking at this small deal that Jephthah tries to make with God, there are just a couple, of also a couple of questions that we might ask ourselves before we move on. Number one is this, if God knew the vow, why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he refuse to give the victory to Jephthah and to the people of God? It's, a, it's an important and good question to ask. I think, first of all, we've got to recognise that if God refused to give the victory after having promised to do so, his people would have doubted him even more. This would not have been right. He'd already uh, sent his leader, Jephthah, and come upon him in his spirit in verse 29. And so the people of God, it's important that they don't doubt him, and so he continues to give the victory. But secondly, we must ask this really important question. Why didn't God intervene here is the same question we ask when God does not intervene in our lives, when we step into sin at any time as well. Why does not God step in when you and I are ready to sin? Why does not God step in when evil and heinous things happen around the world? This is a difficult and vexed question. Nevertheless, if God were to step in on every single occasion then we would be without the cross of Christ the most evil thing that's ever happened in the world and the way that salvation is brought upon our own lives we must be careful what we ask for before we ask God to do these things secondly why did Jephthah not stop why didn't he just change his mind why didn't he just cancel his vow he comes home the daughter comes out he says no I'm done I'm not doing this uh, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And what's even more weird is that she agrees to it. That's strange, isn't it? Then she says, Can I have two months up in the mountains? And you think, Two months in the mountains, I'm never coming back. But she does come back. And then she's a burnt offering. Work that out. Well, both Jephthah and her daughter realize this when you make a vow to God, even if it's made rashly, you've made it to the almighty, powerful, holy God of the universe. And that is not easily understood. They do understand that. They do understand that it's serious. And you and I, uh, who, who we can break uh, promises very, very easily in our day and age. Uh, and we look at it and say, well, just break your promise. But to break a promise to God is a very serious thing. It should not be broken easy. And we should realize the tension in this passage that comes with breaking God's promises or the death of this daughter. And yet at this time, we also get an insight into Jephthah and his relationship With God, for though he was a man of a deal, he didn't try to do a deal at this point. Think of what he could have done. He could have said to God, Please forgive me for my rash vow, but he didn't do it. He could have said, Please give me mercy for my rash vow, but he didn't do it. He could have indeed said, If the deal is victory for a life, let me stand in the place of my daughter and let her live but he didn't do that in fact we get an insight into him in verse 35 look again at verse 35 chapter 11 and as soon as he saw her he tore his clothes and said alas my daughter you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble for me can you hear his tone not my problem not my fault it's your fault here we get a bit of an insight into his blame of Well, with this heaviness, in this passage, we turn to the fourth and final deal that uh, Jephthah makes, and it's in verses uh, one to seven of chapter twelve. It's just a short passage, but it's an echo of what happens in Gideon's life. Ephraim, the uh, tribe of God's people, come up and say, "What about us? How come you didn't pick us and use us in your plan?" Uh, and he tries to work a deal with them, but his uh, his faith is diminishing at this point, and he causes civil war as a result of his mutual. Pride. Things go from good to bad very quickly. So, as we finish up looking at this passage, we want to finish up by looking at Jesus and Jephthah. I mean, someone might read a passage like this, and in fact, read the whole Bible, and say, "Actually, the whole Bible is about child sacrifice." Sounds like Jesus dying on the cross, sent by his father. Indeed, some people say this. They say that the Bible is just one big child abuse book, where Jesus is sent to the cross. Against his will. And although you can see some similarities in all of this, there is a very significant difference. You see, Jesus was an innocent victim, like the daughter. And Jesus, the innocent victim, would pay for the sin of the world, but he would not do so as a third party. You see, the deal was between Jephthah and God, and the deal involved the third party, the daughter. But when it comes to humanity and God, the deal is done with humanity and God. And God is the one who steps into the picture in the person of Jesus Christ. Not as a third party. Not not as a third party at all. As a representative of God to the world. And of humanity to God. 100% God and 100% man. In very nature God being a willing participant in this deal that his death on the cross might bring about salvation for all who would trust in the Lord Jesus. When there was no other way to save, God himself came into this world, not as a third party, but as God himself to die on the cross for us so that we might have forgiveness for all of the rash and silly things we do as well. And so this passage is, is, is terrible. It's horrendous and horrific. But it does, in very small way, point us to the Lord Jesus. The only one who can stand in our place and forgive our sin. And we give thanks to God for Him. Well, you might like to ask a question. I'm going to pause just for 60 seconds or so to ask uh, see if you'd like to ask a question at Slido. I'll come back and answer a couple in just a minute. <coughs> Okay, thank you for your questions. There's a couple there. I expected there'd be a few this morning, and there is. Um, thanks for asking them. Uh, first one is this from Rod. What does it mean that he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel? Um, I think it just means he's had enough. Uh, it's not because he's not responding uh, to their repentance and saying, it's because it's not because of your repentance, if then. Um, but it's just. His compassion. He's grieved by their sinfulness, and finally, he says, "I'm just going to go and help them. It's not they're, they're not doing it. They're not making me help them. I'm just going to go and do it. I'm just I'm, I'm impatient over the misery of Israel. I'm not happy with it. I don't like it. I hate seeing it. Uh, like when you see your kids going through hard times, you just want to come out and help them. Uh, and, and that's what God does to to His children. Here, He just wants to come out and help them. Uh, somewhere in the Bible, aren't there examples where man has influenced God to change His mind? Through prayer and requests. Um, uh, Yes and no. There are two passages where the word uh, says that God changes his mind uh, or or, uh, uh, changes his direction in thinking. Um, You can take that a couple of different ways. One is that that's in our time and space. So if you think about salvation in our lives, uh, when you come to faith, there's a sense in which God has changed his mind at that point. He was against you and now he's for you. And yes, He's chosen you from the beginning of time, but in your time in history, God changes His mind from being against you to being for you. And so I think uh, it's important for us to recognise that these passages come in the context of uh, of time. And so God doesn't ever change His ultimate plan at all. And I think in those passages of Scripture when God does change His mind, it's a temporal thing. It's what God does in that moment to change from this action to this action. That's how, that's how I would argue that point, I think. Uh, Mike, Mike's in Western Australia today it's three hours ago for him Um, so Mike's in the past he says if I I understand you interpret Jephthah's vow so why do our translations not say whoever comes out Uh, because they're worried that it's so horrifically offensive they're just trying to uh, uh, sort of cover it off a bit um, and make it a little less offensive but but I think it is offensive it's horrible what he does is he can't say anything more than it's horrible um so I think you should say whoever. So you can write that in your Bible if you want to. Uh, why grieve for her virginity? That's a great question. We didn't delve into that at all. But the reason for that is, um, in, in their day, uh, it, it's not about the sexual act, really, that's the important part. Um, in her day, uh, her life would have been considered uh, useless because the purpose of her life in those days was to have children and have a family and all those sorts of things. And so this is a way of saying... I haven't been able to live a full and exhaustive life. So that's why she's grieving for her virginity. She's saying, all of the things that I could have as a woman in this world looked forward to in my life, I haven't been able to achieve. And so we might put it in a different way if it was us, but that's what she does as she goes up there. And so um, uh, that's, that's the, the situation with that one uh, there as well. Uh, are there any parallels or contrasts to be drawn between this and Abraham's attempted sacrifice of Isaac? No, I don't think so, because um, the difference there is that uh, in Abraham's case, he was told by God to do certain things, uh, and he was told by God to go in that direction. So I think the parallels are not there. The parallels between Abraham and Isaac and Jesus are very strong for that reason, um, but they're not so strong in this case because this is a rash vow. This is sinfulness. This is not good. Uh, and uh, this is not something that, uh, yeah, that we should be in any way happy with happening in the Bible. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you for this hard passage. And we ask, please, that you might help us not to uh, think that we can make a deal with you and manipulate you in any way.